what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Well, if that sounds familiar, it's because so mourns Juliet in Shakespeare's famous play of star-crossed lovers. Her lament is that his name, Montague, well, it carries no inherent meaning, right? Call a rose by any other name, it is still a rose. It raises the question, friends, what's in a name? What's in a name? For many, there's not, in fact, a whole lot in names. So we can think of baby names. Sometimes we pick names because they run in the family, but many of us pick names simply because we like the way the name sounds, we like the way it rolls off our tongues. Maybe we're looking for some unique name for our very precious and unique little child. You know, the top baby names of 2021 were actually released this past week, and the top boy name is Liam, followed by Noah and Oliver. For girls, it's Olivia, followed by Emma and Amelia. Well, begs the question, friends, why those names? Why are those the top names here in the U.S.? You know, Olivia is actually just feminine for Oliver. Both those names right at the top of the list. And they both just get back to the Latin root, and they speak of an olive tree. So I'm guessing folks aren't naming their girls Olivia or their boys Oliver because they're looking at them and saying, oh, what beautiful, invasive olive trees they are. I'm assuming that's not in their own decision-making. Amelia comes for the Latin root that highlights fertility. I'm not going to comment on that one. And I'm guessing those who named their boys Noah weren't reflecting on God's universal judgment of humanity. But friends, names carry more significance in other cultures. So in China, for example, there are tens of thousands named, I probably won't get it right, but Ayun, which is short for Olympic Games. Because you had them back in 2008, we have them coming again. And thus, the Chinese are fond of naming their children after events or great defining characteristics. And friends, it's like that in Jewish culture as well. Your name, well, it defined you. It characterized you. Your name says, in fact, something about you. So Isaac literally means he laughs after the laughter of Abraham and Sarah when they learned they would have a child at such an old age. Or Jacob means literally he clutches, referring to Jacob clutching the heel of Esau as they came out at birth. But friends, it just begs the question, then, what, what did Jesus' name say about him? What did Jesus' names say and reveal about him? And friends, what would that have to do, if anything, with you and with me this morning? Well, these are the kind of questions I want us to be thinking about as we return in our study this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 1. I'd invite you to turn there now if you haven't done so already. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seatbacks before you. You can find Matthew 1 on page 807. Now, last week, Matthew opened with this carefully constructed genealogy that was meant to highlight how Jesus is indeed the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the long-awaited promise of God's people. Now, I didn't highlight this last week, but if you were listening carefully last week, you may have noticed how that genealogy left us, in fact, in a bit of a conundrum, because 
We read over and over how so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father and so-and-so, and down we go through the generations. But as we get to the end, look back at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Look back there, chapter 1, 16. We read that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, that's not what we expect to hear We expect to hear that Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the father of Jesus. That's the rhythm we expect to hear, but Matthew interrupts that normal rhythm. He won't say that Joseph fathered Jesus. He actually refuses to say what we expect him to say, and in fact, what we need him to say. Because Joseph remembers the one that stands in the royal line of King David. So if Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, right, Jews at this point, they're blowing whistles, throwing out flags, calling foul, whatever it might be. How can Jesus legitimately be the son of David and the son of Abraham if he's not the biological son of Joseph? And therein lies our conundrum. And verses 18 to 25 actually exist to explain that. So verses 18 to 25 are really kind of double-clicking on verse 16. And they're meant to answer the question and explain how Jesus, in fact, is the legitimate son of David and son of Abraham, even if Joseph isn't his biological father. So how do we get there? Let's read Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, many Bibles will subtitle this section, The Birth of Jesus. But of course, the irony in that is there's actually precious little about the birth of Jesus in our passage. There is nothing about the Roman census. There is nothing about all those overbooked hotels in Bethlehem. There's nothing about the shepherds and angelic choirs. We don't get any of that information here. And it's revealing that Matthew's purpose in writing and Luke's purpose, which does record a lot of that, their purposes are different. So Luke, if you're familiar, is going to focus a whole lot on Mary. Matthew here is focusing a lot more on Joseph. And whereas Luke gives more of a chronological rendering of the events, 
Matthew gives us more of a theological explanation of those events. And so really in Matthew 1.18, throughout the rest of Matthew 1 and all of Matthew 2, Matthew will recount really a series of events. And he's going to tag each one of these events, as he does this morning, with a fulfillment quotation from the Old Testament. And in doing that, Matthew is carefully mounting this argument. He's really mounting an apologetic, an explanation, if you will, of how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes. How do they lead into him? And Matthew 1 is all about his identity. 2 is going to be all about geography. But actually, that's what next week we get to hear from John. You get to hear later from Cole on that. We're still in Matthew 1 about his identity. And Matthew reveals something about Jesus' identity by highlighting the two names that are given here to Jesus. And we see one of them in that fulfillment quotation, verse 23, which comes from Isaiah 7:14, right? They shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And then the other is the name that the angel gives to Joseph in a dream, right? Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. So we've got Emmanuel and we have Jesus. And the first, Emmanuel speaks to Christ's person, who he is. And the second, Jesus speaks to Christ's purpose, what he came to do. And friends, that's just going to serve as our outline this morning. First, as we think about Jesus' identity, we want to think about his person, right, who he is, and then second, his purpose, what he came to do. So point one, his person, who he is, point two, his purpose, what he came to do. And I'm just going to give you a heads up right now, point one is drastically longer than point two. So at some point, if you're starting to look at your watch, don't worry, point two is shorter, so don't fret. All right, first, Christ's person, Christ's person, as in who is Jesus, highlighted in that name, Emmanuel. Now, the story opens in verse 18, and it opens, notice, with a wedding invitation. That's how it opens, with a wedding invitation, because we learn right out of the gate that Matthew, not Matthew, rather, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Now, we don't use that word betrothed anymore. The, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, will say engaged. The NIV, I think, will say pledged to be married. And what you're seeing there is translations are all struggling a bit to come up with an English word to describe the kind of relationship here that Mary and Joseph had. Because betrothal was much more than we would think of as, as an engagement today. Betrothal was really a binding agreement formally and legally much like marriage, except in these two critical ways. They didn't live together and they didn't sleep together. But apart from that, betrothal was functionally like marriage. And infidelity, when a couple was betrothed, was therefore considered adultery. It was considered adultery. And once pledged to one another, the only way you break that pledge, that betrothal, was to actually issue a certificate of divorce. And so we read right out of the gate that they're, they're betrothed, they're pledged each to the other. So you can imagine the scene, right, pledge pictures, whatever they would have done, those are being taken, invitations are being sent out, venues are being visited for the future wedding, right? There's great anticipation, there's expectation. And we read that before they came together, in other words, before they consummated their union in marriage, 
And that's what came together means. It speaks to their union sexually as one. Right Before that happens, Matthew's highlighting again their purity here. So in their premarital counseling, there's sort of no difficult labored confessions of, of impurity, of indiscretions. Right, They haven't crossed any lines. That's what Matthew's highlighting for us. And yet we read, nonetheless, that she, Mary, was found to be with child. In other words, Mary is all of a sudden pregnant. And friends, at this moment, right, this is when the record skips, when the music stops, the dancing ceases, and all eyes turn on Mary's belly because there's a baby in it that's not supposed to be there. And it's not Joseph's. And given that infidelity at this point was tantamount to adultery, and given that the punishment for adultery in Leviticus 20.10 is often death, it's looking like that white wedding gown in that closet is about to be exchanged for some black burial gown. Like things all of a sudden have turned terrible for Mary. Now we're not told what kind of verbal exchanges happened between Mary and Joseph or if any exchanges happened between the two, right? Did Mary offer an explanation to Joseph for the baby in her belly? We know from Luke that she received one from an angel. Did she give that to Joseph? Perhaps she did. And maybe Joseph wanted, like everything within him wanted to believe what she had said. But we all know how biology works, right? Babies don't just show up. There have to be contributing parties. Maybe Joseph assumed there was just this tragic moment of indiscretion on Mary's part. Maybe he assumed that a Roman soldier had violated her and she felt too much shame and couldn't admit it. We're not told. We don't know. What Matthew does tell us, though, verse 19, is that her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, that word for just is also the, it's the same word for righteous. And it regularly describes someone whose life and ways conform to the laws of God. So Joseph is being presented as morally and ethically upright. And at this point, for Joseph to wed Mary, well, that would serve as a tacit admission of his own guilt and complicity. To marry her would, in effect, to own up to the child as his. And Joseph knew the baby wasn't his. But evidently his care for Mary ran deep. And so as not to make a public spectacle of her, not to horribly shame her, he chose this quieter way permitted by the law in Numbers 5 and resolved, we read, to divorce her quietly. And in this act, part of what we're seeing is how Joseph is being presented to us as both a righteous man and a compassionate man. So just an aside here. You know, because we have the law on our side and can prosecute one to the full extent of the law doesn't mean as Christians that we should always pursue that course. There is something distinctly Christian in being merciful and extending mercy as we ourselves recognize the mercy we have been shown by God. Now that doesn't mean we call evil good. That doesn't mean there are no consequences for actions. 
There are those who are a legitimate threat to society, those who would prey on the most vulnerable, those who should be prosecuted under the law, maybe to the fullest extent of the law given the heinousness of the sin. And no doubt Joseph probably had some friends of his own in his ear encouraging to defend his honor. This is not my child to the fullest extent of the law and put her publicly to disgrace and shame. He had those people, I bet, in his life. But Joseph's thinking, you know, in this personal case, Mary's no public threat, maybe. Maybe he has in mind the principle, right, that Paul will later elaborate for us, that principle in 1 Corinthians 6. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? Why not suffer a bit? Maybe take a hit to the reputation. Take a hit to to pride, maybe take a hit to one's standing in the community so that God's name doesn't, so that his name isn't profaned publicly before the people. You know, it's a good question to ask in such moments, whose honor am I really about defending and protecting? Is it God's honor or really is it mine? Is it God's name or really is it, is it about me protecting my own name? And we know it wasn't easy for Joseph. That word consider in verse 20, right? But as he considered these things reflects sort of deep thought and process and, and a heavy heart. So this decision, Matthew saying, weighed heavily on Joseph, right? This was the woman he had dreamt of marrying. He had dreamt of beginning a family together with her and yet she's carrying another's child. So no doubt he would have been racked by some combination of grief and despair and sadness and sorrow, many sleepless nights. And maybe it was just one of those sleepless nights that we read, verse 20, that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now dreams are going to be a prominent feature of Matthew 1 and 2. Joseph is going to have three more dreams in the back half of chapter 2 with, with various warnings and instructions in those gene, dreams. Even the Magi are going to have a dream in chapter 2. They're going to be warned. And we might be tempted to think that such dreams are a normal part of the Christian life. But in fact, when you read the Bible, they're quite rare in the Christian life. You know, dreams in the scriptures are often precursors of divine activity. They often occur during unique moments of salvation history when God is breaking through and doing things in the world and thus using such dreams to explain what he's doing. And they often function as a kind of divine revelation. So you can think of the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, or Jacob in Genesis 28, Joseph in Genesis 37. You can think of the call of Samuel, that significant moment in Israel's life for Samuel 3, or Peter in Acts 10, when it becomes really clear at this point to the disciples that the gospels would go to all nations, right? All things are clean, there to hear, there to receive. But friends, now that we have God's word, right? It's encapsulated for us. His will is encapsulated for us. We shouldn't expect dreams in the same way we find them in the scriptures, right? Paul doesn't say to Timothy, as he's preparing him for ministry, he doesn't say, Timothy, seek revelatory dreams. No, he says, rather, preach the revealed word. That's the emphasis as you move through the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying dreams never happen, 
I have no interest in saying the Holy Spirit can't use them, right? That, that's up to him. That's not my interest. I just would be reluctant to ascribe any authority, any authority to them. Right? We have, according to the Scripture, all we need for life and godliness in his revealed word, 2 Peter 1. But this is a unique moment in salvation history, and Joseph is, at this point, visited by an angel in a dream. And notice how the angel addressed Joseph. Joseph, son of David. Now you have to think, whoever in Joseph's life had addressed him as son of David? That must have been as perplexing to Joseph as it was to any individual. Because, of course, Joseph understands himself to be the son of Jacob. right? Not immediately the son of David. right? But that address by the angel was purposeful. Son of David is to clue Joseph in that something bigger is going on here. Something is happening right now that has to do with the throne of David and God's rule. So if Joseph was pondering before, he's certainly scratching his head and pondering now what's about to happen. And then he's told, right, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. As in, the angel says to Joseph, don't worry about all the rumors. Don't worry about all the side glances. Don't worry about all the whispers and the pointing of fingers. Don't worry that when you walk down the sidewalk, couples will see you and part like the Red Sea and go to the other side. Don't worry about that. They will think what they want to think. They will say what they want to say. But you are to take Mary home as your wife. And what reason does the angel give? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then to support, Matthew quotes verse 23, which is, I'd rather a quote of Isaiah 7, 14, verse 23 is, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph, if his head wasn't spinning earlier, his head has got to be spinning at this point right now. There must have been great relief to know that that baby in Mary's belly wasn't another man's. But that's just been replaced by a new problem. Because who is possibly going to believe this explanation if Joseph tries to give it? Right? He's traded one problem for another problem now. Now, of course, Joseph has first learned of this, of this conception here in his dream. But Matthew has actually already prepped us for it back in that editorial comment back up in verse 18. Right before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Matthew's at pains to make clear this was a divine conception. This was, in Jesus, a supernatural conception. Now, don't confuse this with the Immaculate Conception. So the Immaculate Conception is an entirely different thing. Right? That's a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that Mary, and that Mary's conception was actually free of sin. That Mary was actually conceived and born without the stain of original sin. That she didn't inherit a sin nature. And that was actually codified, for those of you who are curious about such things, this week back in 1854. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's actually not what most Roman Catholics believed in the past. Like Aquinas didn't believe this, for example. 
No, to be clear, the Bible nowhere teaches that Mary was free from original sin. Paul actually states the opposite in Romans 3, right? And of course, the Bible teaches what instead we would call the virgin birth, which is really more about a virgin sort of conception, if you will, than a, than a virgin birth. But either way, whatever you want to call it, it, it's no less problematic when we stop and we think about it. For we be, we're being told here, Matthew's telling us that Jesus has a human mother but he doesn't have a human father. His conception is instead a result of the creative work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, for many, that is ridiculous. That's scandalous, right? Many would say, listen, Christians just admit it, right? They slept together. They made a mistake. Big deal, right? Chalk it up to raging hormones, whatever you want to say. It's not that big a deal. Don't invent something like the virgin birth. It's an embarrassment. But friends, it would have been an embarrassment in Jesus' own day. right? They knew how babies were conceived as well. Most moderns mock the very idea. So if you know the former bishop, Episcopalian bishop, John Shelby Spong. Spong called the virgin birth the entrance myth into Christianity. He called it the entrance myth into Christianity, of which the resurrection he called the, the exit myth. But friends, the Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth. Twice we are told in these passages, twice that Mary's conception is, quote, from the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and then reiterated again, same language in verse 20. Matthew's leaving no doubt. Both those expressions are causal, as in the Holy Spirit caused this conception. The Holy Spirit brought it about. And Luke affirms the very same thing. The aim is is to show how the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was all the way back in Genesis 1, in the beginning, active in the creation of the world, is also active in bringing Jesus into the world. Same Holy Spirit. And thus, at this point, we have come to what's been called one of the most extraordinary miracles in all the Bible. Miracles, miracles, whatever you want to call it, right? And one of the most remarkable mysteries, friends, in all the universe. Extraordinary miracle, remarkable mystery. It's right here at the virgin birth, for example, that Christianity is going to part with Islam and Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians, as I grew up. So many others. Friends, why does the virgin birth matter? Why is this made so explicit? There are at least two key reasons. The first being without the virgin birth, friends, Jesus is not God. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is not God. If there is no virgin birth, Jesus is a man just like you and like me. It's the virgin birth that makes possible the unity of both Jesus's human nature and his divine nature. So as Christians, we speak of Jesus Two natures, human and divine, yet in one person. And the virgin birth makes this possible. But friends, secondly, without the virgin birth, there's no salvation. Without the virgin birth, there is no salvation. Why do I say that? Well, it's because every child born after Adam and Eve, born of a human mother and a human father, inherited their own sin nature. As Paul says very succinctly and explicitly, in Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15. 
You can go read Romans 5 to help if you want to think more about that. But Jesus does not descend biologically from Adam. There in Mary's womb, a great break was made, and Jesus doesn't descend from Adam. That cursed line in Jesus was broken, and a new Adam would be formed, right? A second Adam. And just like the first Adam, this second Adam would be born without the biological seed of a man. His human life, just like the first Adam in Genesis 1, would be a unilateral creative act of the Holy Spirit. And yet the difference is where the first Adam chose to sin, the second Adam wouldn't. He didn't. And friends, that right there is what makes salvation possible. Because Christ doesn't bear the inherited guilt and sin and thus the shame of the first Adam, nor did Jesus incur that shame and guilt by sinning like the first Adam. And because he didn't, he therefore is qualified to be that righteous, spotless Lamb of God. So in order that Christ's death might atone for sin, he had to be both representative of us, i.e. fully man, and yet he had to be without sin, right? Unlike us, sinless, i.e. fully God. So without the virgin birth, Jesus is but a man. Without the virgin birth, Jesus cannot reverse the curse. He cannot save sinners. He is at best, Jesus is a wise sage. He is at best some kind of moral revolutionary. And without the virgin birth, right, without this entrance myth of Christianity, Matthew's helping us see there's no Christianity. Without the virgin birth, there's no gospel, friends. For without the virgin birth, salvation history doesn't have a Savior. But of course, this is where salvation history has been leading all along, right? Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and then goes on to quote Isaiah 7. The virgin birth was God's sign of coming salvation, right? And this is how God works. God makes promises in his word, and then he fulfills them in the world, and that's what he does. And so we have to see, even as we read that, that the Old and New Testaments, they're not hopelessly at odds with one another, as many may think. Certainly, Matthew doesn't hold this view. The Old and New Testaments don't present drastically different gods, like one of wrath and one of love, as if those two things are mutually exclusive. Doesn't present two different paths of salvation, one of works, one of grace, two different people, one of Jews or one of Gentiles, and so on. No, Matthew's helping us see the Bible is one story with one plot about how God is going to display his glory by delivering a people through this Jesus Christ. And it's only possible because this Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, there is no greater blessing in all of Scripture than God dwelling with his people. It's how the Bible opens in Genesis 1. It's what makes Genesis 3 so horrific. Not just their nakedness, but their exclusion from God's presence but notice it's how the Bible opens, and notice it's how the Bible closes. In Revelation 21, God with his people. Friends, it's how Matthew opens, presenting Jesus as God with us. And if you know the book of Matthew, friends, how does the book of Matthew close? 
The very last words in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, Jesus promises, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, up until this point, God had dwelled with his people in a temple. But now in Jesus, in the incarnation, God dwells with his people in a person, right? The temple has been made flesh in Christ. And today, how does he reside with his people? But through the Holy Spirit, right? What do we see in Acts? Jesus ascends to the Father, and in doing so, he sends the Holy Spirit, who descends and fills his people, dwells within his people. And that Holy Spirit dwells within his people individually, but it's that same Holy Spirit that dwells with his people corporately in gatherings like this. I mean, it is Jesus who will later say in this very same gospel, Matthew 18, that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And Jesus is not talking there about small groups and youth camps and coffee dates with friends. We make it that. That's actually not what that verse is about. The context of Matthew 18 is the local church. The context is the local church where Jesus says there he has invested his own authority. The local church, he says, is that institution which bears his name uniquely and solely on earth. The local church Paul will say, is that temple where God's spirit dwells. We think of our bodies as God's temple, that's true. But the emphasis scripture puts more on, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, is the local church as the temple of God's spirit. Which is why, friends, it's so dangerous. So dangerous to our souls when we stop gathering as God's people when we stop gathering together and committing ourselves to local churches. Because we are in doing that, separating ourselves, divorcing ourselves from God's intended presence and means of grace in our own lives. Now Joseph couldn't have grasped all of that. But we do read in verse 24 that when he woke, what did he do? He did just as he was commanded. He hears the word of the Lord and then immediately obeys the word of the Lord. Isn't that a great picture right there of biblical obedience? To hear the word and then to obey the word. You might be 15 here this morning. You might be 50. And you may need to be reminded again of what biblical obedience looks like. We used to say my wife would have this expression with the kids, right? Um, they're to obey without delay, discussion, or disgust. Kind of leaned in on the early years with that one. And oftentimes I'm like, yeah, I'm having a hard time doing any of those things myself. But be that as it may, I mean, just notice Joseph here. Joseph doesn't delay. Right? There's no delay. There's no discussion. There's no disgust. He's not trying to negotiate a better deal with God at this point. He's not saying, God, listen. You know all the controversy surrounding this pregnancy. You know if I go through with this, I'm going to lose friendships over this. I'm going to lose standing in my community. I might lose some business as a consequence of taking Mary as my wife. You know, there are going to be personal costs. There are going to be financial costs in this decision. Certainly you can find Mary another husband. I mean, I'm not fit to, to bear the, the, well, not he's not bearing, to be the father of Mary's child, the son of God. Like, I don't have, God, you can find someone else. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't take that tact. 
He obeys and he takes Mary as his wife. And so notice how Jesus becomes a son of David by adoption. Interestingly, which we could talk about at so many levels, how Jesus becomes a son through adoption. But I think one thing that's interesting to consider just in the time in which Matthew's writing, or at least the time in which Jesus was born, you know, Julius Caesar, his successor was an adopted son whom was known as Augustus Caesar. And it was Augustus who expanded the entrenched cult of Caesar. It was Augustus who really insisted that he be worshipped as God. And it was Augustus who was reigning when this Jesus was born. It's as if God is saying to the world in the birth of Jesus, hey, you know what, Romans, I want to one-ups you on this one. Let me introduce you to a true king, to the only son of God, adopted by a far more faithful husband than Caesar. But friends, imagine as well what that, that wedding ceremony might have looked like for Mary and Joseph. You know, given the scandal, who do you think came? How many venues were they turned away from? How many places canceled on them? How many groomsmen and bridesmaids may have backed out of that wedding? How big was Mary's you know, baby bump? We know from Luke that she was at least a couple months, four or more, into her pregnancy? Did she have trouble getting a dress? Did she waddle down the aisle, right? Was Joseph the only one to receive her? We're not told these things. We're only told, verse 25, that he did not know her until she had given birth to a son. Now, if you're unfamiliar with with the Bible, that, that word know is just a euphemism in Scripture for intimate sexual relationship. In other words, the two were not together as married couples are together. And we're not told why, but presumably it was so as not to confuse about the origins of this baby, to leave no doubt that this baby was, was conceived supernaturally. But do notice that Matthew says nothing about Mary's continued celibacy what's sometimes referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Matthew says nothing about that. And in fact, the language would speak against it. Joseph did not know her until she gave birth, kind of implying she didn't know her until then and meant she, he would know her afterwards as married couples would. And Jesus, of course, after all, did have other brothers and sisters as we know. But none like this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Christ's person. That's who he is. Friends, what about his purpose? Secondly, what about his purpose, why he came? And I told you this was a much shorter point. All right, so don't fear. There's another name for the child, right? It's his given name, the one we, we know just intuitively, the one Joseph's given in that dream by the angel. Verse 21, the angel says, Mary will bear a son, And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Now, as I noted in the introduction, to to Jewish people, names carried significance. And Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. And that word Joshua means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Right? Both getting at the same thing. Jesus' own name right there reveals his purpose. 
And lest we miss it, Matthew makes it explicit. You're to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, this is not likely what Joseph or any first century Jew would have expected. They would have been looking for a political deliverer. They would have been looking for a military conqueror. One like David who would rule on a throne and give the boot to the Romans, right? Kick him out of the land. But the angel says that's actually not why Jesus came. It's not why he came. He wouldn't be Jesus fundamentally a political deliverer. He wouldn't be a military ruler. He is going to be a spiritual savior. That is his primary purpose. Matthew is helping us see that all of us need salvation. We all need saving. And the saving we need is not from poor self-esteem. It's not from repressive governments. We don't need saving, finally, from public schools or from communism or from capitalism or even from threats to religious freedom. We don't even need saving from the storms, finally, that ripped through our nation's heartland this weekend. Christ came, in fact, to save us from something much deeper, something much more fundamental, something more global, something more deeply detrimental than any of those things I've just noted, and that is our sin. That's why Christ came. That's what he saves from. Which means your greatest challenge and your greatest problem this morning, including mine, is our sin. Our greatest problem is not our spouse. It's not that final your teacher just gave you or is about to give you. It's not the president. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not global warming. It's not Putin's saber rattling in Ukraine, right? Those are not the biggest problems in the world. It's sin. And not just other sins, though that's an issue. It's your sin. It's your personal sin. Friends, that's why Matthew says Christ came to save sinners. So whereas the Old Testament located salvation in the broad plans of God the Father, we're seeing how here the New Testament is more explicitly locating it in the divine person of the Son. Jesus doesn't just bring salvation. Matthew's helping us see Jesus himself. He is salvation. It's in him so that he is actually emphatic. Literally, the Greek is he himself will save. In other words, salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among, under heaven, right, by which men must be saved. Friends, that means your relationship can't save you. That means money can't save you. Your status can't save you. Your family can't save you. The faith of your parents can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Only, Matthew says, this Jesus can save. That's it. There's no other. Because Matthew's going to go on. Only Jesus, he says, has authority to forgive sins. Matthew 9, 6. Only his death, Jesus' death, that death alone, only that death will serve, Matthew 20, verse 28, as a ransom for many. Now, we're not told here explicitly how Jesus is going to save his people. But, you know, we are given a hint Because in verse 23, as I've noted, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And I know it's hard to remember all the way back to Isaiah 7. But if you do remember back, I think to the very beginning of September, 
as we work through Isaiah this fall, there was this promised Emmanuel in 714. This one who will, as we read on in chapter 8 of Isaiah, who will possess the land, who's going to thwart his opponents, who's going to appear in Galilee of the Gentiles, chapter 9, as a great light upon the nations, chapter 9. The one who's called, right, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. The one who's going to reign on David's throne forever, Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah 7, all this person, it's the same person spoken of. This one in Isaiah 7, unlike King Ahaz, is the one who Isaiah says will eat the bread of affliction in order to learn the lesson of obedience. Isaiah 7.15. In other words, Emmanuel is presenting, uh, Isaiah is presenting us as this Emmanuel, as yes, he is a king who saves, but he's going to do so through the bread of affliction, through suffering, through humiliation. By quoting Isaiah 7, Matthew is actually preparing a careful Jewish reader for the cross that's to come. So friend, if you've come this morning and if you are not a Christian, all of this, all that we've been speaking to is at the heart of what Christians call the gospel. And the gospel is simply the glorious news that God himself saves sinners. We can't save ourselves. God must come and save us. There is nothing we can do. All of this. What is Mary doing? What is Joseph doing? They are all largely passive in this. God is at work. God is active. And notice the three members of the Trinity all at work in seeing this salvation plan come about. We can't save ourselves, but he can save us. And it's why Christ came. To take upon flesh, right, as our representative. And then as that representative to live a perfectly holy and righteous life, the life we should live but choose not to live. And then to die on the cross, the death we deserve for our own sins. And then to rise again from the grave, proving that Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. And so he was raised from the grave so that all who would repent of their sins and all who would believe upon this Jesus, they can be saved. And that's the heart of the good news of the gospel. And you and repenting and believing can know what it's like to dwell with God for eternity. That's Christ's purpose. That's what he came to do. So friend, I ask again, I ask again what's in a name? Right, what's in a name? According to Juliet, very little. But according to the Bible, according to Matthew, it turns out there's a lot in a name. Jesus given two names. Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. And as Jesus, he is the Savior of sinners. That is what he came to do. And it's there, right at the first Christmas, that these two names... And that in these two names, we get the, the most profound and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie right there in Emmanuel and in Jesus. And it's at that name of Jesus that one day we read that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Friend, have you called out to this Jesus? Have you called out professing His name for salvation? And friend, if you haven't, will you not now? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for the wonder of your word. How quickly it is to read right over a passage, to think we know it, and then to stop and to ponder and to have that passage just continue to reveal new truths and depths of understanding and and things we hadn't considered. Lord, your mind is unfathomable. Your word is a mind that we ought to unearth and we ought to dig and dig to learn as much as we can from it because it reveals Christ to us, the hope of glory. And God, we give you praise for that. And we pray that as we enter into this Christmas, this Emmanuel, the Savior of sinners, would be ours, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.